Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. There's a lot of employment in the service sector, and that's what's been disrupted a lot. Some of this might be permanent. I mean, a lot Mm -hmm. of people might decide they're fine cutting their own hair um, (laughs) two years down the road. I mean, I've had to be rather innovative over the last year, and I'm sure a lot of other people have. I'm Danielle Smith, and I'm joined now by Professor Livio DiMatteo. He is a professor of economics at Lakehead University. He's been doing quite a bit of work looking at the impact of COVID and COVID restrictions. And his latest work is Global Storm, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and responses around the world. And he joins us now to discuss what he has found. Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, My pleasure. Good day, Danielle. Let's begin by putting this in sort of a a global context and how you framed your approach to this study. Because I I think that there's this impression that all you needed to do was lock people down, put masks on, social distance, and that would reduce the amount of hospitalizations. It would reduce the amount of people going into ICU. It would reduce the amount of deaths. And so I suppose if you were just looking at those statistics, it would have been a pretty easy measure are those the stats that we should be looking at? Or are those the measures that made the most difference? Well, the, the entire pandemic and the response to it uh, is, is fairly complicated. It was a global phenomenon. Uh, the study itself looked at uh, up to several hundred countries, depending on the availability of data. And it sort of mapped out uh, you know, the incidence of the pandemic in terms of cases per million, uh, deaths per million, uh, then it also looked at the economic impacts, uh, some of the uh, fiscal impacts, uh, et cetera. So it was, it's fairly comprehensive. And as a part of this, um, some statistical analysis was done looking at what determined uh, cases per million, deaths per million in terms of variables that uh, may have been influential uh, in determining the extent and severity of the pandemic, as well as the mitigating factors. So in, in terms of the, um, the factors and, and the responses uh, to the pandemic, uh, a couple of variables came out as statistically fairly important. Uh, the first is testing rates. Uh, basically, uh, countries that had higher testing rates in terms of tests per million uh, seem to have done uh, better. Uh, in terms of catching cases and reducing mortality. And so uh, essentially for every 100,000 tests uh, per million uh, that were done, uh, you were looking at uh, uh, quite a few uh, fewer cases, something like, uh, and also uh, 21 fewer deaths per million. And so, I mean, that, that, you know, adds up as you, as you ramp up the testing. Another important determinant of the mortality rate is the proportion of your population over age 70. And so countries that are, in a sense, older uh, were hit much harder uh, by the pandemic uh, with a higher mortality rate from it. And so the study itself uh, is confined to simply 2020. I I mean, the the data is for essentially from about uh, January, February of 2020, to the end of December, early January of 2021. So it's just those 12 months. So in that time frame, there, uh, the countries that were hit very hard initially were actually a lot of the uh, advanced economies, the International Monetary Fund, uh, IMF 35, if you'd like to call them. And those countries uh, tend to be uh, relatively older than other countries. You're looking at the proportion of the population over age 65 to 70. Uh, in the double digits, uh, 14, 15, 16%. The rest of the world uh, actually has a much younger demographic uh, profile, particularly in the less developed countries. And so they were not hit as hard at first, 
uh, they've uh, featured more prominently out in the second and third waves moving into 2021. But in 2020 itself, the, uh, the front end of the pandemic certainly hit the developed world quite hard. And so deaths were significantly correlated with that. Uh, in terms of another important mitigating factor, uh, it turns out that um, hospital beds uh, per thousand population were actually fairly important. And so if you look at the, the statistical results from, from some of the regressions, uh, essentially uh, each additional bed per thousand population uh, was significantly correlated with about 31 fewer deaths per million population. So many people will say, well, an extra bed, 31 you know, per million, it doesn't seem like a lot, but you have to realize that there's quite a variance in bed numbers, uh, particularly even amongst the advanced economies. So uh, the advanced economies, for example, range from bed highs of about 13 beds per thousand population to just over two in countries like Denmark, Canada, uh, uh, et cetera. So uh, Canada, out of those 35 IMF countries, ranked 32 out of 35. It had some of the lowest bed numbers. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of the, uh, the mortality tally in Canada uh, in the first year of the pandemic, you're looking at about 500 deaths per million. I mean, if you had bed numbers closer to Japan's, all other things given, you're probably looking at you know several hundred deaths per million fewer uh, than uh, was otherwise the case. And many of the deaths in Canada also uh, uh, about 70% were in, in long-term care retirement home settings. And so again, that's a function of Canada has a relatively older population. Uh, it's a function of the degree of protocols, et cetera, that were in place uh, to prevent infection uh, in, in those settings. But uh, when push came to shove, there was also not enough hospital beds. And each of the waves of the pandemic, even in Canada, has featured uh, restrictions in part to keep uh, case numbers down because of the fear of overwhelming the infrastructure or the capacity. So, I mean, it's a complicated story. Uh, Canada overall, uh, among the IMF 35 countries, uh, if you look at its performance, it uh, doesn't seem to do that badly, actually. It uh, tends to be in the bottom third in terms of cases per million, deaths per million. Uh, it seems to do reasonably well. Um, however, um, if you, it, it depends on your reference group. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I guess one of the most important lessons uh, to learn from the pandemic is that it's important to learn from a pandemic. And um, Canada, in a sense, had a dry run uh, for the pandemic, along with about 30 other countries in the world. Uh, this was the, uh, the first SARS uh, pandemic uh, epidemic uh, in uh, circa 2004. And of those 30 countries that had some cases of star SARS, five uh, were particularly hard hit with more than 100 cases. And uh, those countries include uh, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and Canada. And so uh, after the SARS pandemic, uh, many of those countries appear to have undertaken measures uh, to enhance their response for future pandemics. Uh, Canada also had numerous studies and panels convened and plans drawn up. But in the intervening time from 2004 uh, to the present, uh, we seemingly quietly deactivated our our global public health intelligence system, uh, which was actually one of the best in the world. Uh, we allowed our stocks of personal protective equipment to, to run down. And even when the pandemic began, we seemed to be relatively slow off the mark uh, in securing borders or in recognizing the, the severity of the pandemic. And th that is uh, a factor also in why the toll hit us as, as hard as it did. So, so I, I wonder why, it, I, this is not, I'm going to, to return to a couple of the, the, the issues about the, the type of, I guess they call them non-pharmaceutical measures that well, are taken. My bit on SARS actually. I, can I just finish up my yes. bit here and then we can talk about uh, the, the non-pharmaceutical measures. 
I mean, my, my point is the following. Of those five countries, uh, Canada had 500 deaths per million. The other four of those five heavily impacted countries, the deaths per million ranged from just under one to about 22 deaths per million. So they appear to have learned the, the, the lessons of SARS and implemented uh, their plans uh, much better than we did. So, I mean, that was the point that I was trying to make there, if it was somewhat roundabout. Well, I guess I, I wonder is if it's possible, was it that there was a broader circulation of the virus in those four other nations besides Canada? Canada's uh, SARS outbreak was really isolated to Toronto. And I, I think that there's been well, some they were studies. Also, uh, like, uh, Canada had uh, several hundred cases in the end, largely confined to Toronto. Okay. Uh, these other countries, it, it was, there were many more cases. I think uh, China had something like 8,000 cases uh, during that particular episode. So they, like only five countries had more than a hundred cases. We were one of them, several hundred. And uh, those other countries did have more cases, but, but nonetheless, I mean, uh, if you will sort of think, recall back to that period, it was actually uh, quite traumatic even in Canada that this was happening because there was quite a few deaths from it too. Okay, let's then talk about the, the th I think the takeaway a lot of people are going to have from COVID is that all you need to do is lock people down, put a mask on and keep social distance uh, because that's what our, our politicians kept telling us. And I just find it interesting that that didn't emerge as an important factor in your research. So uh, was it because it was impossible to get the data to be comparable or is there some other factor that, uh, because I, I think that if we're going to learn the lessons of COVID, we, we need to make sure that we're doing more of the right things that will reduce hospitalizations and deaths and, and not be diverted into sort of political answers. And so can, can you comment on that? Well, I, I mean, the, the response is multifaceted. This was a new virus. And so the initial response in many respects in the absence of a vaccine uh, is not much different from, you know, a medieval plague. I mean, some type of physical distancing, quarantine measures, face coverings. I mean, those are, are all appropriate tools. Uh, the lockdowns uh, seem to have an effect uh, on mortality and case numbers, particularly in the first wave. Uh, those ones seem to be particularly effective. It's the protracted lockdowns that seem to be more difficult. I, I mean, as the protracted lockdowns continued, uh, I think a lot of people uh, became more comfortable living with the pandemic. Uh, they basically did not follow the rules as much. And so in, in a sense, a lot of the rules were almost voluntary in terms of compliance. And so the, the protracted lockdown was less effective. I mean, the, the best way out of the pandemic, obviously, is to have vaccines. And that did not emerge till almost the end of the first year. So given that you have a not a large supply of hospital beds, uh, there's no vaccine really in a sense, protracted lockdowns seem to be the, the only tools left. We were also short of PPE, uh, particularly in the first few months of the pandemic. And so it was a, a it's a fairly, the lockdown's a fairly blunt instrument. It can work, but they have to be short, sharp and, and enforced. And uh, the first lockdowns were also effective because people were more afraid. And so I think there was a lot more compliance, but as time wore on, uh, they became less fearful, took more risks. And um, that, that, that has been a factor. And I think more work will emerge on that uh, as time goes by. I mean, in a sense, this particular study is very preliminary. It's the first year of the pandemic. And as time goes on, more and better data uh, emerges in a, in a longer span of data, uh, more complete data, I, I think we'll be able to get a better handle. I mean, the report itself did not focus specifically on lockdowns as a restriction measure. It was the, the Oxford government response tracker. So it's an index from zero to 100. The bigger the, the number, the more restrictive. And uh, lockdowns are only part of the sort of... Um, set of variables that's used to construct that index. So the stringency in general, seems higher levels of stringency earlier on the pandemic seem to be more effective. Later on, uh, you know, they seem to be positively correlated and that's because very often as cases rise, you ramp up stringency so the variables move together. It's only at the very beginning where the, the, the stringency seemed to have gotten ahead of and, and, and brought down 
uh, the cases and, and the mortality numbers. All right, let's then talk about the, the measures that you did find to have a strong impact. So first of all, the issue of testing. And testing has been a bit controversial because in the past, whenever we have had, say, an influenza outbreak, we, we normally only test people who appear with symptoms. And so when you look at the difference between jurisdictions and they were reporting case numbers, oftentimes it came down to, well, how much testing are you doing? And are you identifying cases of people who are sick with it and infectious? Or are you testing people who just have, a, have a remnants of the virus turn up in their blood? And yet you found that to be a very strong correlation. So why would that be? The more testing you do, the better your outcome was when you're looking at some of the, uh, the other measures. Well, if you, you test people, you discover the cases and, and then they can be you know quarantined or self-quarantined so they, they don't spread it. Uh, I mean, you could, if the if the pandemic was uh, if the symptoms were more obvious, uh, it would have been easier to contain. The original SARS, I mean, the, the people who were infectious, it was obviously ill. Whereas there's a lot of asymptomatic spread this time, so more testing, of course, could identify more of the asymptomatic cases, and so that basically allows you to, in a sense, you know, nip things in the bud uh, before the the problem gets larger. So. Uh, more testing, uh, uh, basically a greater spread of, of the testing uh, is, was, was very useful in sort of containing ultimately cases and, and of course the mortality from those cases. I wonder if you can get granular in Canada, and I don't know if other nations are like this, but uh, you've mentioned in some of your other work that part of the issue we have in Canada is our healthcare system and the issues of, of testing would be driven by the provincial level. And it was quite a bit of variation between provinces and how much they were they were testing and how quickly they managed to get that together. Is, is Canada unique that way or are those confounding factors in other jurisdictions as well? Well, um, one of the... Um results or variables examined in, in the report was, was there something about federations or f countries with federal arrangements that somehow affected either the response or the outcome? Uh, it turns out federations internationally did not seem to have uh, worse outcomes, statistically speaking anyway, hmm. um, than non-federations when it came to cases and mortality. But, you know, if you look at some of the worst hit countries, you know, the United States, uh, Brazil, India, in terms of total case numbers, those are all federal countries. And so even though on the surface that seems to be a relationship, excuse me, statistically, uh, that did that not seem borne out. Um, within the IMF countries, again, there does seem to be a difference uh, within those 35 countries, the eight or nine countries that are either more devolved or uh, our official federations did seem to have uh, somewhat higher mortality rates, uh, more cases. And so one starts to wonder if uh, differences in countries that have a more uniform jurisdiction uh, did emerge. And so again, I think that's more uh, something that will be examined in more detail in the future. Uh, the Canadian case, of course, yes, you have uh, health is a uh, provincial responsibility. And um, although there's a lot of similarities in general in health outcomes across the Canadian system, even though there's, you know, 10 provinces, uh, in the case of the pandemic, um, each province did have somewhat slightly different, I guess, approaches to testing and uh, the, the measures that they implemented. Uh, and for the most part, that's a good thing in a federation. Uh, I mean, one of the advantages of a federal form of government is that uh, in a sense, it allows for, uh, I don't know if experimentation is the right word, but sort of different approaches. And from that, a sort of best practices can emerge. So, I mean, early on the pandemic, the Atlantic provinces seemed to do best uh, in terms of containing the, uh, the pandemic within Canada. And so one would think that there might be some lessons there. Uh, on the other hand, there's also differences across the provinces. Some are much more densely populated than the others. And I mean, I think that's a factor. And, you know, Canada as a whole uh, within the world, uh, one of the reasons, you know, we did as well as we did, all other things given, is 
partly our I think our, our low population density and the dispersion of our of our population. Like we like to think Vancouver and Toronto are these large cities, but really even Toronto, once you get outside of what uh, Young, Bloor, Spadina, and King, it's very low density. Uh, Toronto is actually a, a very spread out, low density city. It's not Mexico City. It's not Shanghai. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think in, in a sense, Canada uh, did better, all things given, uh, because we are a relatively more dis dispersed country. And we're dispersed politically, we're dispersed ge geographically. Uh, and so that may have also affected our response. The, the, the federal government, uh, essentially health is not a federal responsibility except in certain uh, narrowly defined areas. And so that was uh, left to the provinces. Uh, even in terms of vaccines, I mean, the, the federal government undertook the procurement role. The provinces did the dispersion, disbursement role. And so even there, there'd be differences uh, across the, the provinces. Uh, Etc. I, I will want to get you to draw the um, some conclusions about where we should be looking in Canada as we're trying to tease out the differences between the provinces because I think this is important because I was watching these stats all the way through too and Quebec was dramatically worse in the death rate compared to the western provinces. And so I, I'm, I'm interested in knowing, I know right now we're looking at national data, but I think we're going to have to do some more detailed work and understanding what the differences are in our provinces to understand why it is the death rate was so much higher in Quebec than it was in the, in the rest of the country, and particularly in some of the, the smaller Western provinces. And I guess you'd probably also say Atlantic Canada. But but maybe the next measure that you looked at, I wonder if this gives any indication at all, because you, you talked about hospital beds also being a, a factor related to the performance of uh, how, a, how a nation did. And explain that to me, because I guess here's my starting point in thinking about that. By the time somebody is sick enough to need to be hospitalized, that can actually increase the likelihood of them having a bad outcome. So it would seem to me that if you had more people in more hospital beds, sicker people, you'd probably end up doing worse. And yet, the idea of having more uh, hospital beds sounds like it was a mitigating factor. So can you piece that together for us to, so I can understand why that might be? Well, you have more hospital beds when people get more ill and require ventilators or an ICU, they'd be more available. Uh, and in Canada, the, the hospital beds per thousand population uh, across the provinces uh, doesn't vary that much. You're looking at about two beds per thousand to about four. Uh, I think... Uh, the largest number of hospital beds per thousand population is in Newfoundland and Labrador. Hmm. Uh, that's closer to four. So there's that range, but even that range is at the lower end uh, of the, the IMF countries. So uh, if you look at where all the deaths have been, I mean, in Quebec and Ontario in particular, uh, they were harder hit by deaths, but a lot of those were in long-term care homes and retirement facilities where people are more crowded together, uh, particularly if the uh, the residents were in wards of four beds. And so in Ontario, one of the things that uh, appears to have happened uh, as the year has progressed in 2020 is that those bed numbers, uh, those beds were basically, those rooms were converted to two bed wards from four. But what that's also done is exacerbate the, the shortage of long-term care. I mean, in Ontario, long-term care beds uh, we're about, uh, at about just under 80,000 or so, 78,000 about oh, 15, 20 years ago, about three years ago, they were still at that. And then uh, with the pandemic, they've actually had to take beds out of circulation uh, in order to basically allow two people to a room, particularly in, in many of the older homes, which still had more wards. All the newer homes that have been constructed over the last five to 10 years all tend to have, you know, single rooms mm -hmm. or at most two residents. So uh, if you had an old stock of long-term care homes, uh, retirement homes sort of you know, built 40 or 50 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, that is probably not, not, this was not in the study. <laughs> Please, you know, just fully understand that. This well, is as I say, I'm just looking to see if you can give us some advice on what we might look well, to next. Uh, and this, this does seem to be like a fruitful area of future well, research. No, so I, please I, continue. I, I, 
I, I think there's going to be a, a lot of work that has to be done exactly, you know, what happened there. So even as people became ill in the long-term care homes, uh, it would appear that a lot of them didn't make their way to the hospital. Um, and I mean, you can ask what are the reasons for that? I mean, these, the current wave, this third wave in Ontario, you've seen the hospitals come even more stressed than they were during the first wave. And part of that reason is that the first wave, in a sense, hit the elderly, particularly those in long-term care, very, very hard. By 2021, most of them had been starting to be vaccinated. So when this third wave came, it did not impact them uh, as much, but it did impact the younger demographic. And you know, unlike people in the long-term care homes who may have ambulatory or cognitive issues, you know, people under age, you know, 50 who are mobile, if they're feeling ill, they're going to go to the hospital. And I think that was, was an element of what was going on. That is the virus spread and the new variants start to take hold and a younger demographic was being affected. Uh, they were picking up and moving and going to the hospital. And so that sort of exposed the shortcomings of uh, inadequate bed stock even more uh, in terms of the hospital sector. It does strike me that um, if you do have, I'm trying to connect this to the data that you did look at, if you also do have a greater stock of hospital beds, when somebody in long-term care does get ill, you can move them to the hospital and keep them in the hospital. I think one of the issues that we had is, especially we saw this in New York, that those who were positive with COVID were actually being pushed out into long-term care, which was increasing the spread. And I, I don't know if we've got good stats on that. Are, is there, are there any statistics out there on the extent to which a jurisdiction did a good job of keeping COVID out of long-term care homes? Because I bet that there's probably a very strong correlation between those two factors, that if the, the lower the incidence in those congregate care settings, probably the, the lower overall death rates. And I don't know if we keep consistent statistics across jurisdictions for that. Did we able to find anything like that? I didn't really examine long-term care home. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, you know, from, from, from what I know, even within the provinces, there's quite a variable performance even across the long-term care homes. I mean, Ontario is just over 600 long-term care homes and about 60% of those had no deaths, even in 2020. Mm -hmm. And the other 40% uh, that had deaths, again, some had a few. And then there's, you know, the, it's quite um what's called a skewed distribution. There's some homes that, you know, had quite a few. So the, the first lesson there is you have to look at that data and find out why some homes seem to have had, uh, you know, concentrations of, of mortality and others did not. And that may be related to staffing, that may be related to uh, the vintage of the home in terms of the, um, the, the whether there were wards or not. But that is certainly something that I think uh, health ministries uh, across uh, the country will probably be examining uh, in great detail uh, in, in, in years to come. Let's then talk about the connection between the, the, the reaction by a particular jurisdiction and the impact that there's been on overall economic performance. It's a difficult conversation to have because I, I think uh, no politician and no economist wants to be in a position where you're looking at, at trade-offs between human life and economic performance. But I look at economic performance as being a, an indicator of the underlying health of the economy. And we do know that there's a strong incidence of health conditions that emerge if you have unemployment. There's suicides, there's depression, there's long-term poverty issues. And so I, I know it's an imperfect measure to be looking at uh, the performance on health measures versus GDP measures, but I, I just wanted to, to use it as a bit of a proxy to know if we're going to have long-term future consequences in health. Is that is that a fair way of putting it on the table or would you describe it a bit differently? Well, um, I looked at the impact of the pandemic on GDP. I, I didn't really look at the impact of sort of GDP on the pandemic per se. I mean, all countries saw, most countries saw actually their economies shrink. But may I ask, <laughs> Professor, I guess, before I get into it, I, I'm just wondering why does GDP matter? Because I think there will be those who will say, well, when you're talking about health, sky's the limit, GDP isn't even a consideration. Why should we be con concerned about GDP in, the, in this context? Well, GDP ultimately is what pays for healthcare. I, I mean, if your economy is disrupted, not, not only is your you know, their unemployment and, you know, 
people don't have an income, but there's also the you know the tax revenues and the resources uh, that are used to provide healthcare. So I mean, a GDP and, and, and healthcare in a sense do move together. Um, however, some of the measures that might have been taken to sort of uh, slow down uh, the spread of the pandemic through restrictions did have a, a, an adverse effect on GDP, at least in the short run. Most of the fall in GDP, it's kind of interesting when you start of looking at um, the effect of cases per million, deaths per million on uh, real GDP growth. Much of the drop occurs as soon as the pandemic hits. And, you know, the first, say, 20,000 cases per million up to about the first 500 deaths per million. And after that, there really is no more effect. I, I mean, the hit is early on, and then it sort of stays there. And so what happened, of course, is that, you know, uh, the economic shock was quite severe in the first three months. Annualized, you're looking at, you know, drops in GDP of 20 or 30%. But then as the pandemic went under control, economies rebounded. Uh, and so in, in the end, the drop in GDP uh, in 2020 was not as pronounced as you might have thought it was going to be in the first three months, but it was still significant. And uh, the drop in government revenue in particular, of course, was also a factor in the size of the deficits uh, that were then uh, incurred. Well, what should we be looking for as we go forward to look at the, the strength and health of economic recovery? Because I, I think one, one thing people are, are, are questioning is whether some of the, the lockdowns and uh, restrictions are going to result in permanent job loss, permanent business closures, and we're going to see a permanently low level of, of GDP? Or do you have some creative destruction that businesses that were on the verge of not doing um, particularly well, they they went out of business, but that frees up resources so they can be redeployed elsewhere. And then you end up with a roaring 20s type of situation where maybe economic growth is even is even accelerated from what it would have been. What what uh, what, what, what factors should we be looking at to determine which way this is going to go? Um, well, <laughs> those are all very good questions. And uh, I, I don't know if I really have an answer as to what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think GDP is going to be permanently lower. I, I think the economy will recover. Um, I think uh, if you look at uh, some of the, the indicators, uh, there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand uh, for all kinds of things. I think you are going to end up uh, with a bit of a large pandemic rebound, and that will certainly drive the economy forward. Uh, in the longer term, though, there's a number of, of issues. Um, the first is the disruption to the educational system over the course of a year and a year and a half. And, you know, even uh, some of the historical studies that have been done and some of the studies that have been done by the OECD are, are forecasting that the growth rate may be permanently lower. Uh, that doesn't mean the economy is going to shrink. It's just going to grow at a slower rate. Uh, because of the disruption to human capital, to education uh, among so many people in the schools. Then there's uh, people that will have withdrawn from the labor force. Uh, there's going to be uh, a lot of businesses that, uh, in a sense, weren't able to hang on, in which case you're going to have fewer businesses, uh, fewer businesses, basically less opportunities for entrepreneurship to be practiced. And so that could have a long-term effect. Uh, even people that have had COVID, uh, there seems to be a phenomenon uh, known as, you know, the, the long haul uh, symptoms. Uh, that also occurred apparently after the Spanish flu. There were some people who, even the ones that recovered after the Spanish flu, uh, in a sense, were never as healthy. Mm -hmm. And so that affects your lifetime earnings, your, your ability to earn an income. So I, I think some of these types of things are going to emerge in, in in sort of over the next three to four years is also being significant factors in slowing down growth. Uh, then you have the, the fiscal factors. I mean, uh, all governments around the world have taken on an awful lot of debt. And so the question is, how much of an impact will that be on future growth? Uh, particularly if, uh, if you look at the supply shock and then pent up demand coming in after the supply shock, if there's a burst of inflation, will it be accommodated by monetary authorities and lead to inflation, which then, of course, will lead to interest rates going up? I mean, these are all variables, and um, uh, it's, it's difficult to look ahead and uh, know exactly what's going to happen. 
I mean, personally, I, I think there is going to be a recovery. I think uh, the first year after it uh, will be fairly robust, maybe even the first two. Uh, but then after that, given that we were already in a sort of slow growth environment prior to the pandemic, I mean, you're looking at real per capita GDP growth at about 2%. Given that we're already in a slow growth environment and some of these other long-term factors that reduce growth further might kick in, uh, then yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a problem given the uh, you know the debt load that countries have taken up, and um, it will certainly be uh, challenging. I think uh, as you move about five to ten years uh, ahead. You you also looked at it, it wasn't an, an even impact on every sector either. There were certain impacts that were uh, felt more harshly in in certain sectors. Is there is there any area of the economy that was hit particularly hard? That is is a major driver of GDP. That is going to be going to have a huge impact on government's ability to earn revenue in the future. Um, well, I, I didn't really break it down to that extent. I mean, the sectors that were hit very hard were personal services. Mm -hmm. uh, any type of uh, activity that required personal interaction of some type, or people coming together, uh, arts and culture, food and accommodation. All, the, all these sectors were hit very hard, and, and these sectors over time have become much more important. A um, hundred years ago, economies uh, were largely goods producing oriented. Uh, the more developed economies now have shifted to services and away from uh, goods production. I mean, goods production is still as important as economies, but there's a lot of employment uh, in the service sector, and that's what's been disrupted a lot. And so some of this might be permanent. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of people, you know, might decide they're fine cutting their own hair, um, <laughs> you know, two years down the road. I mean, I've had to be rather innovative for, over the last year, and I'm sure a lot of other people have. And so even, uh, you know, things like eating out and uh, some people have discovered that, you know, skip the dishes is what they prefer to do. They don't want to go to restaurants anymore. So Hmm. What do you do with uh, a lot of the brick and mortar establishments if people decide they're not going to go back? Uh, I mean, I think in the end, human beings are social animals. Uh, people like to be with other people. I mean, there's going to be a few, you know, months of adjustment, maybe a year. But once it looks like the pandemic is firmly in recess, and that, that's starting to look more and more likely, although, I mean, with variants, we're still not fully out of the woods yet. But I, I think as once people get more comfortable, people will return to, you know, theaters and concerts and and uh, events because, well, that's what people do. I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I always used to marvel that uh, sometimes talking to my students, they, they seem to, you know, think that, you know, watching a, a movie on a device this size was you know, meaningful experience. I mean, I always thought a movie should be viewed on a big screen and there's sort of this energy from people in the audience laughing. And I think as time goes on, we'll, we'll definitely get back to that. So um, I, I, it's important to be optimistic. And I think, you know how it is, um, the world will move on. It always does. Well, truly it does. I have, a, I have a, a lot of confidence in people being able to adjust and economies being able to adjust and entrepreneurs being able to adjust. I'm a little more concerned about governments being able to adjust. And, and I, I wonder what we need to be thinking about in the context of, of just how much money our, our, our Canadian government borrowed. Just how deeply in debt are we? Because we kind of get the sense that, well, it was a pandemic. They needed to put this amount of dollars out to make sure that they can ease the way through until we got to the other side of it. But but was our experience in Canada the norm? Did did every country do, do what we did when it came to the kind of borrowing and, and debt load? A lot of countries ran deficits. Um, relatively speaking, Canada probably ran larger deficits than others. Uh, the study also looks at the difference between what the model says should be your predicted deficit and what the, the actual deficit was. And ours was probably four to five percentage points larger than mm -hmm. one would have expected given the actual severity of the pandemic. Uh, it's not that Canada was at the top in terms of deaths and case numbers per million. Uh, within you know the IMF 35, we were in the bottom third. And yet our, our response was really quite quite large on, on, on the fiscal and stimulus side. So there, there may indeed be some overreaction on, on the part of governments in Canada. 
And, you know, if you look at the, the savings that Canadians have accumulated uh, over the last year, um, some of that was obviously because, well, there were no opportunities to spend. Uh, some of it also was uh, all the income support, wage subsidies, uh, assorted payments. And so, I mean, um, the government uh, did spend a lot. I, I think in the first half of the pandemic, uh, first half of 2020, so to speak, uh, I think a lot of that was warranted. There was a lot of uncertainty as to where things were going. And so that type of support was necessary. Uh, tapering off the support is probably something that should have begun a little earlier once the fall hit. Uh, and uh, I, I think that is uh, going to be a bit of a concern. If you look, you look at the federal government's uh, most recent budget, you know, by 2025, you're looking at a total net debt of something like, you know, 1.5 trillion or something like that. And that's just federal. I mean, then you can add the provinces uh, the municipalities have done fairly well. I mean, uh, believe it or not, uh, municipalities over the last few decades have developed this interesting habit of um, always running what they, they call them positive variances. I mean, people would probably get more alarmed if they said there's a continual surplus, but they tend to run positive variances. And, you know, even in, during this pandemic year, uh, most municipalities were all busy saying, you know, oh my, we, we need uh, support. And more than not, most of them are showing for 2020 positive variances. They, uh, you know, my own city just uh, about six months ago said the positive variance looked like only a million dollars and now it finished off at 4.1. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of the support that came from the province and the federal government to the municipalities um, is going into their reserve funds. So to me, that suggests that they may have provided a bit more than, than was necessary there. Um, so, I mean, uh, this, this will uh, have to be sorted out uh, indeed over the next year or so in terms of, uh, I'm sure there'll be studies on, uh, and economists will probably do them as to how much support was too much, uh, what support missed the mark, uh, et cetera. Well, I guess the other part of it is that if there is a resurgence in the upcoming respiratory virus season that we know will happen in the fall, it seems to me that the government's levers to be able to address it the same way are greatly diminished. I I don't know that uh, we have the capacity in our economy to spend another $600 billion in order to to see through um, whatever wave we might have. And so I, I guess I'm wondering how how concerned should we be about debts and deficits? There once was a time back in the 1990s where it didn't matter what political stripe a, a, a party was or whether it was provincial or federal, everyone came to the consensus that running balanced budgets and surpluses was the thing that we needed to do. We almost hit the debt wall in 1993, 94. And I, I just, I don't, I guess something's not computing for me because it strikes me, how can you double the amount of debt at the federal level and no one's talking about the potential to hit a debt wall. What, what am I missing about, about what's happening this time around? Well, it, it's a matter of, of degree, so to speak. Um, uh, right now, the federal debt to GDP ratio is at about 50%. And uh, when we hit the, the debt wall, uh, interest rates were higher. And the debt to GDP ratio is about 70. However, if you add provincial debt, then the total indebtedness uh, in Canada, it starts to get you know closer to ninety percent, mm. and again, uh, you're able to carry it because interest rates are low. I mean, if you go back to the early '90s, one third of every revenue dollar coming in was being used to service the debt, uh, because interest rates were you know high in the '80s, and they were still high in the '90s relative to they are now. So, in a sense, the decline in interest rates has afforded this fiscal dividend, mm. and uh, basically, uh, governments have used the low interest rates to take on a lot more debt. As long as interest rates stay low and they don't add to it as much, the debt, the situation will probably be manageable, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, If interest rates start to go up, that's when I I think things are going to get much more difficult uh, given the amount of debt that's been acquired. I mean, it's a a, a large stock of debt uh, in absolute terms. As a share of GDP, I guess you can make the, the case that, you know, well, federally it's only 50%, but it went, you know, from just over 30% to 50% in a you know, very short period. And so uh, a similar type of response, again, uh, bringing the federal debt to GDP ratio 
to 70 or 80 percent brings it back into that territory of uh, the debt wall of the early 1990s. And uh, if interest rates you know, go up even a couple of percentage points, that would be major. I mean, going from 2% to 4 is percentage-wise a very large increase, uh, you see. And so it basically doubles your debt service costs. So that then takes resources out of other things and uh, is a major problem. It is. So we've, at least you've, you've satisfied my anxiety that at least one level of government is not in these dire straits and adding to the problems. The municipalities by and large seem relatively healthy. And I think it's, they've just got rules-based budgeting that limits the amount of debt they can take on and how much interest charges they can have. So that's good, good news. But talk to me a little bit about on Ontario, because when I look at the country as a whole and our ability to, to recover, Alberta is obviously uh, one engine, but the main engine is Ontario. And do they have, um, is there, are there some warning signs that we should be con concerned about with their level of debt load and their capacity to, to return to normal on, a, on GDP growth? Well, on, on, Ontario um, has been hit fairly hard by the pandemic. Uh, 80% of Ontario's exports, if not more, go to the United States, for example. So the border restrictions have been uh, hard on the Ontario economy. Um, the tourism sector has been hit very hard, uh, particularly in southern Ontario, because of the cross-border travel again. So those are all aspects of it. Um, the, the other factor, though, is Ontario, for the longest time, uh, did have uh, slower growth. Its per capita GDP growth uh, basically has been below the Canadian average for the last two decades. The last couple of years, it seemed to be sort of improving somewhat. But because of that sort of longer term uh, performance, uh, Ontario has also acquired a, a fair amount of debt. And so uh, Ontario now is also approaching, uh, if it's not already there, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips. But uh, I mean, I think after Newfoundland, Ontario has the next highest debt to GDP ratio. Uh, mm -hmm. Quebec is actually uh, bringing its debt to GDP, or was at least prior to the pandemic, bringing its debt to GDP ratio down. So Ontario, which is, you know, the largest economy uh, within the Canadian Federation, uh, the largest pop province in terms of population, uh, you know, you're looking at the uh, a key driver, uh, low productivity growth, a fairly high debt load. Um, yeah, that, that, that is a concern in terms of how Ontario uh, is going to respond. And a lot of the wealth generation in Ontario over the last five years has basically been uh, in real estate. Um, it, it's, it's really an, an odd situation, but uh, there's run up in housing prices in Ontario, but a lot of your GDP is being generated by the real estate sector. And we're not even talking, you know, construction so much, just buying and selling of homes. Um, that is not a, a, a source of product, productive long-term growth. I mean, you're looking at improvements in output per person. Uh, you're looking at rising per capita GDP. Um, this is, you know, a, a giant wealth effect. It's great if you have a house in Toronto right now and bought it around 1990, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not good. I mean, how is a city like Toronto uh, attract young talent, uh, compete for talent, if, you know, people even at the upper end professionals, you know, all they can afford is like a 400 square foot condo. I mean, it. Mm. it and even those are starting to get rather pricey. So, I mean, I think that's a long-term problem uh, uh, for the sort of, let's call the Mississauga conurbation that sort of stretched from the Wadashua all the way down to St. Catharines. And in a sense, you know, people might be pleased with the increase in the value of their homes, but I think in the long run, uh, it's really going to hurt the economy uh, of that region because people just can't afford to live there. Even you know, rents are, are really quite high. And so um, how do you address that? And in the long run, the way you address that uh, is through supply. Um, because uh, what's, what's happened over the last 30 to 40 years uh, is between a regulations and policies that have restricted supply, uh, increases in population, low interest rates, a rise in incomes over time, um, you know, demand has gone up, family unit size has gone down, something like uh, the most common household now in Canada is a single person household. Yeah. 
So, so basically, uh, your housing stock is more likely to have one occupant than a family living in it. So, I mean, all of these factors are all demand side factors. And at the same time, we restricted supply. And so uh, an important long-term policy is what do you do uh, to boost supply? And so, uh, you know, in Toronto, basically, it's either a single family home or a condo downtown, it seems like. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in between. Uh, if you go to a lot of European cities, they have these uh, sort of condo apartment style type residences that are three to four stories, often built around a little courtyard and green space, right on a busy street. And uh, they, they tend to be fairly large, fairly spacious, and they basically allow you to house five, six times the number of people in, in fairly spacious surroundings affordably. And, and we don't have that in Canada, as mm -hmm. I mentioned. You know, I think earlier on in the podcast, you know, you have uh, Toronto is very built up uh, within these sort of four streets. And then the rest of it is just very low density, you know, the odd apartment or high rise here and there. But there's none of this sort of intermediate type of uh, housing that uh, would be you could have ownership as, as, as a condo and also allow more more density, but more people to to, to, have, to own something, which is, seems to be a preference in Canada anyway. You, you've identified a lot of conundrums here and we'll, we will wrap it up, but here's some of the main takeaways that I have and you can you can let me know if I've missed anything. So we've got a, a pretty large emerging problem in Ontario with the fact that their economy was much more, um, was hit much more hard. We also have a problem with the uh, issue of, of high housing prices, which is going to be a, a difficulty in attracting that sort of young workforce there. Same time, we've got lots of, additional spending that took place at the at the provincial and federal level, which is leading to a, a debt burden that's going to cost more money in order to address it with interest charges and so forth. At the same time, we've identified we need to do a greater reinvestment in testing capacity and hospital bed capacity so that we can, and, and perhaps even looking at uh, increasing long-term care bed capacity, it's certainly designed for going to avoid the same kind of outcomes that we had last time. This is a, this is a real conundrum. Do you have a do you have some hope that we can end on? Well, you know what? I, I think people are more resilient than we give them credit for. And I think uh, we'll be able to solve these problems somehow. And I think it's important to, to, have, to start off by having the discussion rather than burying your head in the sand and saying that there is no problem. The Canada, Ontario, all the provinces face a lot of challenges. And... Um, I mean, I suppose you could say, well, we wouldn't want a future without challenges for our grandchildren. However, it would be nice to, you know, you know, give them a leg up in meeting those challenges, whether it's through the educational system or the opportunity to buy a house. So um, I think we do have to to deal with this, and um, and I think we will. Um, Canada is a very wealthy country. Canada is a developed country. Uh, Canada is got a lot of potential. Um, and, I, and I think we can meet these challenges and we're going to have to try and be as imaginative as possible in doing so. And we also have to, in a sense, have a will to want, want to do so. And that might require more people, you know, getting involved in their communities, whether it's, you know, government running for their councils, uh, just, you know, providing input rather than simply, you know, putting blinders on and focusing on their their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, it's probably time to take more of an interest. Well, thank you so much for the conversation today. I sure appreciate it. My pleasure, Danielle. Have a great day. You too. My guest has been Livio Di Matteo, Professor of Economics at Lakehead University. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit fraserforum.org.